Lord Jesus, you give us an invitation to come to you if we're weary, to come to you if we need rest. You promise that we will find that rest in you. May this morning, may this time of gathering, of learning together be a time of stepping further into that rest, of looking into your eyes, of gazing into your face, seeing you looking back at us. Be present with us this morning, Father, Son, and Spirit. Thank you for inviting us into your community of love. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. If you want to turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew 12, either using your phone or a Bible that you brought or these red Bibles that should be in the chairs around you, we'll be in chapter 12, verse 22. That is on page 866 in these red Bibles. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him. He healed him so that the man could both speak and see. All the crowds were astounded and said, could this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not scatter, gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from his storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. A long reading of the word of the Lord. Uh, there are two ways to experience something in front of you. You can direct your gaze at the subject of your attention, take it at face value and move on, or you can peer into the subject, into the moment, stepping into experiential knowledge of someone's emotion and state of being, into the moment center. Some photographers I was reading, they have a way of distinguishing between these two types of vision. It's looking versus seeing. Photographers would also tell you that there's a difference between taking a picture and capturing a moment. One requires a deeper kind of vision. You can simply observe a moment in time, this is looking, or you can stop to truly see and understand the implications of what's unfolding before your eyes. That's, that's seeing. 
You can direct your gaze at the person in front of you, or you can attempt to transcend the surface to reach the inner person. You can look, or you can see. One of my favorite directors and screenwriters, Christopher Nolan, he has a way of grabbing his audience's vision and sense of direction and setting them down in the liminal space between this looking and seeing. There's always some hidden or not so hidden mind-bending meaning that unfolds by the end of these movies, and that's why people love his stuff, because sure, you could watch the movie, look at it, take it for face value, you could appreciate the all-star cast, the special effects, and the score, but then you'd miss the magic. You could also watch the film in such a way that follows the twists, the nuances, the subtleties, the meta-themes. You could place yourself inside the work of art, and when you do this with, with anything, with art, with film, with people with opportunities, when you learn how to truly experience something for what it is, that's when it can change you. You can look, or you can see. But the Pharisees, as we see in today's teaching text, they had this sort of vision problem because they looked at Jesus, but they never saw him. They looked at the life of Jesus, his miracles, his message, even his death and his resurrection, and they still missed his face. They miss the gift of experiencing his presence. And I think this passage is a cautionary tale about the dangers of missing Jesus. Here at Soma, some of you guys know we're seeking to be a people that practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. We're seeking to become mature, whole disciples of Jesus, to become people of love, to become like him, to do the things that he did. But becoming mature disciples who bear what Scripture calls good fruit, it starts with a clear vision of Jesus. It starts with seeing him. So in this time of teaching, we'll just attempt to walk through this passage and look at both the dangers of looking at Jesus without seeing him and some ways that we can practice our seeing Jesus in our daily lives. And we'll journey through this this time in three, uh, four scenes. A sign of the kingdom, proceed with caution, a subtle tragedy, and the way of a tree. So this is scene one, a sign of the kingdom. Verse 22, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him. And he healed him so that the man could both speak and see. And all the crowds were astounded and said, could this be the son of David? So just for some context, the tension in the cultural air has been building for a while. The past few scenes we've seen include Jesus calling people to take up his humble way. He's healing on the Sabbath. He's challenging and reframing Jewish religious institutions. And here we see Jesus doing the same kind of thing, but approaching a different kind of institution, that of the unseen world or spiritual forces. This reminds me of Ephesians 6 that kind of outlines the fact that we're not fighting in this world against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, forces of the unseen. And Jesus is taking these powers head on in this first verse. Jesus literally exercises someone here, and I think Matthew is pretty hilarious because this brother gives no frills, no fanfare, no details. It's just Jesus delivers this guy, and then it's just a regular day in the office. They just move on from there. We're used to Jesus, uh, the healer, Jesus that walks on water, Jesus that can turn a boy's sack lunch into a midday feast, Jesus that can be the life of the party and turn water into wine, but Jesus, the, the exorcist? That's not the first thing that comes to my mind, at least. That's pretty hardcore. But he heals this man, and some scholars think that this is the same demon-possessed man as in Matthew 9. And if that's true, we have some additional context for what this healing might have meant for those who saw it happen. All the crowds were astounded and said, could this be the son of David? And Matthew 9 would tell us that this kind of healing was unprecedented in Israel. This deliverance from a demon with the word. I know we read stories like these in the Bible and we think they seem pretty normal, like it's back in Bible time, so 
demon possessions and exorcisms were probably like commonplace. But it wasn't quite like that. But these people, these Jewish people were familiar with the world of the unseen, but the straight up casting out of demons, that wasn't super commonplace. The Old Testament, uh, there's no record of people casting out demons at all. And in the New Testament times, we have some historical writings that detail some rituals and processes of delivering a demon from somebody, but there's no evidence that these were really too successful, and they were probably pretty few and far between. You can read Acts 19 for a uh, funny but kind of not so funny story about a deliverance session gone wrong for a few folks who thought they had the strategy down. So naturally, the crowds here, they were astonished. They were starting to be convinced that maybe this could really be the son of David. But what's the son of David? That title, it's just a callback to an Old Testament prophecy, Nathaniel's prophecy to David in 2 Samuel, that one of David's offspring would be a, a king forever. He'd come to rescue his people and the world. As we continue in the passage and we go later, Jesus volleys back the proverbial tennis ball of Old Testament prophetic fulfillments, and he says this, If it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. So most of us in this room right now, I'm not at least, are steeped in Second Temple Judaism. So a lot of these images and references might go a little bit over our head. Strong man plundering the house. He's, he's referring back to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 49 verse 25 says, This is what the Lord says. Yes, the captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children. I will save. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The Jewish crowds had to be familiar with this imagery and what this meant because they were steeped in this tradition. They had to be picking up what he was putting down, and they were skeptical. I mean, this guy isn't exactly the military leader, political strategist, kind of bring the kingdom by force guy they might have had in mind. But seeing what just happened, this demon be expelled from this man with the word, this victory that Jesus claims over the evil one in the most comprehensive way was saying something. He was ridding the source and the substance of the ailment. And I think this is a microcosm of what Jesus came to do on a cosmic level to tie up the enemy and rescue those that he's taken captive. Could this be the son of David? Could this be our Messiah? This healing here is a sign of the kingdom of God. And Brandon will talk more about signs and kingdoms next week, but here's the heart of this first scene. I think Jesus is communicating to those watching, look at this and look at me. Look at what I'm doing and then look at me, the one in whom the kingdom of God dwells. Disarming the kingdom of darkness is as easy for me as saying, let there be light. And this victory points people back to his invitation in chapter 11 to, to come to him. All those who are weary and heavy laden, he'll give them rest, healing rest. If this kind of deliverance is possible, then every kind of healing is possible. Healing in the most comprehensive and holistic respect, transformation from the deepest of darknesses into true life is both possible and impending in me. So look at me. I wonder if there was anyone else in that crowd who had an ailment they thought was impossible to heal, a relationship they thought was too far gone, or a sin pattern they thought was too ingrained in their person to ever be set free, thought they'd never be freed from Roman oppression or corrupt religious systems. The people that were longing for a Savior, they looked and they truly saw Jesus in this moment. They caught a glimpse of the fullness of his character and his kingdom. This healing 
was a sign of that kingdom. We know encounters with anything horizon extending or reality shifting always provoke some kind of response. Typically, it's one of two. You either respond in hope or you respond in, in fear. Think of the automobile or the microwave or the iPhone or artificial intelligence. You can respond with hope. You can respond with fear. How you respond, I think, is dependent on your vision for life and the new reality that this thing brings. So the crowds, they're starting to see Jesus and his kingdom more clearly. Their deepest longings were being met with this moment with, with hope. But the Pharisees, their blindness towards Jesus leads them down the opposite path, the one of, of fear. Because the news of God's kingdom isn't good to those stuck with a nearsighted vision of building their own kingdom. It's a threat. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. This is seen to proceed with caution. Have you ever said anything you didn't really mean? Be caught up in the heat of the moment and something just slips out, talking to someone that you actually do truly love and, and, and care for, but for whatever reason, something just comes out of you that you didn't know was there. I was a sophomore in high school um, I was coming home from school, uh, I was 16, and this was a particularly hard day at school. My best friend at the time, uh, someone I considered to be my first true love, she and her family had decided to move um, out of town. My world was in shambles. <laughs> it was a terrible day. That's pretty much all that happened that day. That's all I was thinking about. Anyway, safe to say, when I got home, your boy was coming in hot. I was, uh, I was not having anything. I wasn't doing nobody's dishes. I wasn't taking on any trash. My mom... Um, some, at some point that afternoon, that evening, she asked me to do something very simple, very routine. I can't even remember what it was. Probably something like take out the trash. And I don't know what happened between the time when she asked me to do that and uh, when, uh, the time I responded. But something happened, and I kind of snapped. I exploded in such a way that I responded with something to the effect of, I hate you. I don't know if I said those exact words or not, but it carried that same weight. I hate you. Unprovoked. The end of that story is actually pretty funny, um, and it actually gave me so much respect for my parents and their relationship. It's a pretty defining day uh, for who I am as a person, but I'll say that for another time. I think the issue here was about distorted vision. I think about this moment all the time. I was looking at my mom in that instance, but I wasn't seeing her. Now, I loved her. I'd grown to become so grateful for her loving intentionality and her guiding presence, but I wasn't seeing her in this moment. I was just seeing the world coming at me. I was, I was blinded by my own cares and concerns, and out of that blindness came an angry reactivity. And I know that's a pretty trivial and silly story, but I think there's a similar danger to missing Jesus, to not truly seeing him. It cultivates an inability to be receptive toward him, towards his spirit, towards his kingdom, and it transplants that receptivity with the reactivity against or away from him. So the Pharisees here, they witness something objectively good, right, miraculously hopeful, but they still respond from this place of desperate knee-jerk reactivity. They respond like a teenager saying, I hate you to his mother. It doesn't make any sense unless, unless your vision is off. They attribute Jesus' healing and delivering powers to Beelzebul, which is just a slang word for Satan. They're saying he's in league with the devil. And like me in the story I just told, I wonder if they really even believed what they said. I think the Pharisees here are less worried that Jesus is actually like a witch or a shaman. Like maybe some of them were. But I wonder if they're reactively attacking Jesus out of their fear, out of their blindness, 
out of their fear of vulnerability. If you think about it, if Jesus is Messiah, Jesus would, and he already was, kind of detracting attention away from the Pharisees and their influence and leadership. If Jesus was Messiah, that means that the Pharisees' way of life, their vocation is wrongly aimed. What got them here won't get them there in business speak. Now, following Jesus means that what they've banked their life on has to take on a new aim, that they have to take off their robes in a way, laying down the, the feeling they get when they enter the room, the years of rigorous study that makes them appear a certain way to their communities, the pride and prestige that comes with their title. David Brooks, a New York Times columnist, he captures a similar feeling in one of his writings. He says, on the hike up the mountain, he was spending some time in Colorado, I composed a list of all the things I would have to give up to God if he actually existed. My work, my reputation, my friendships, my life, my loves, my family, my vices, my bank accounts. I think this this vocational vulnerability was too expensive a cost to pay for the Pharisees. And secondly, if Jesus, if he is really the true Messiah, and he is who he says he is, and if I'm the Pharisees, I'm like, man, he he knows too much. (laughs) People in positions of leadership, especially spiritual leadership, we live with this low-grade anxiety that maybe someday someone will see how big the gap is between who I'm trying to become and who I actually am. Maybe someone will find out about my struggling marriage that I've kept quiet about, my quiet addiction that I've fed for years, the way that my need for efficiency and productivity has turned me into an ugly monster of hurry. The list goes on. But this part of a leader, this part of anybody really being brought to light, this is the ultimate vulnerability of all. So listening to Jesus' message would have required a vulnerability that the Pharisees never cultivated. It would have required them to bring their naked shame to the feet of Jesus, to look him in the face and accept his invitation into the comfortable yet freeing place of true repentance and new life. And for people like the Pharisees, and maybe like for some of us, this kind of exposure is simply too much. We'd rather stay blind than open our eyes to this reality. Jesus' presence and his kingdom is a threat to the Pharisees' way of life, so they chose to remain blind. Again, they were looking right at him, but they weren't seeing him. So Jesus responds, he kind of takes down some of their weak argument logic, like, why would I be working with the devil if, you know, I'm over here destroying his kingdom? And also, don't you guys try to do the same thing? Like, first of all, calm down. Arguments don't make any sense. But then he goes on to give a serious warning to those seeking to get in the way of people's vision of the spirit at work in Jesus. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Theologian Dale Bruner has some good perspective on this verse and what's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He says, the correct pastoral approach has always been, if you're worried that you've committed the sin against the Holy Spirit, you haven't. For the spirit of this sin is an unworried adamancy, it is impenitence, the unwillingness to repent that is at the root of the unforgivable sin. It's not careless acts. It's a hardened state. He also goes ahead to give a pretty robust definition for what this sin means in context. He says, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is resistance to the mission of God's spirit at work in Jesus and deliberately ruining the spirit at work in Jesus in the eyes of others so that they won't trust him. 
So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the, the far end border consequence of not seeing Jesus and then going ahead to hindering others' uh, vision of him as well. Working against the Spirit of God so hard that you're in, intentionally and continually believing his work is demonic, one. And two, spreading that misinformation campaign to others. A good image that someone gave to me was imagining yourself in a, in a parched, dry, hot desert. There's only one source of water. Is this oasis? Everyone's drinking from it. The thirst is quenched. They're getting life from this source of water. But, but you believe it's poison for some reason. You believe it's poison and you're going to decide to not drink it. It's the only water in the whole place. You're not going to drink it. And you're going to go ahead and try to convince others as well that this water is poison. What's going to happen? It's going to die. If you lead yourself to death, cut off from the source of life, if you call life death, you, by simple common sense, cannot receive said life. And I think that's the heavy reality of blaspheming the Holy Spirit here. By living with an adamant posture that attributes the Spirit's work to the work of evil, you cut yourself off from ever even receiving the Spirit. That's never receiving his conviction that draws you to Jesus, who brings you to reconciliation with the Father. Scholars go back and forth on this point, but I don't think that Pharisees are really even being accused of this sin here. Jesus goes ahead to call them back to repentance later in the text, which wouldn't be possible if they'd really committed this sin. So I think Jesus is giving more of an indicator light of the path that they're headed down. It's a proceed with caution sign in response to their desperate words of attack that I don't even think they fully understood the ramifications of. I do think there's some important things to draw from this, this, uh, this scene here, proceed with caution. One, the Spirit's work is serious. There are so many YouTube channels about so-and-so's church or so-and-so pastor or so-and-so's demonic or this is a false teaching, this is a false teacher. I've heard so much conversation in this very city about how this church down the street, not that church down the street, it's general. It's like stunting faith in Jesus or how so-and-so's church is... I got to cut that from the live stream. That's not what I meant. <laughs> or so-and-so's church is preaching a watered-down gospel or so-and-so is too conservative or too liberal or whatever. We need to be careful, though, because we're speaking about the Spirit at work in the body of Christ. And the Spirit's work is serious. False teachers are real. Discern and discard false teachings to your heart's content, but... I think the word here is to leave the false teachers to God alone. It's, the easiest, uh, it's easiest to miss seeing Jesus when he's alive and active in the spaces you might not expect to find him in. Secondly here, the Pharisees' distorted vision wasn't only affecting them, but it was running the risk of cutting them off from him and distorting others' vision as well. They're being blind guides, as Jesus goes on to later call these people. Their words are carrying weight that they don't really realize because the crowds must be confused now. They just saw this thing happen, the sign of the kingdom, right? But now the religious leaders, people that they put their trust and kind of stock in are telling them that this guy's a demon. Like, there's got to be some confusion in the air, some distortion in the air. They're actively scattering people away from Jesus. You brood of vipers, he calls them, conjuring up images in our biblical memory of the serpent in the garden, planting a seed of distortion in the minds of our first parents, blinding them to the reality of their first love. The Pharisees, they've chosen, those chosen to guide and guard life with God have been co-opted into this way, this way of the serpent. This is scene three, a subtle tragedy. So there are a lot of blaring errors that the Pharisees make in Scripture. They overlook the poor, 
They live a performative spirituality. They make money off the temple. They take part in the crucifixion of Jesus himself. But I think here before us lies a quieter danger, a more subtle tragedy. As you've been seeing, the Pharisees looked at Jesus. They followed Jesus, literally, for most of their life. But they never saw him. Their words and actions, they showed this. They were so blinded to the reality of him and his message that they basically called him a demon. While the actual demon-oppressed man went from utter darkness to light, the Pharisees choose to remain in the dark. They looked, but they did not see. So what does this mean for us? I think this passage, again, is a cautionary tale about missing out on what matters most, on losing the ability to truly see, on paying so much attention to your own expectations for how you think the world should work, to building your own kingdom. It is not the reality of our world today. Were people living in a world without true vision, a world that passes by Jesus daily, a world that continues to call the work of good evil and the work of evil good, a world full of disenchantment to the wonder and the work of Jesus, the world that can't see, and this is where we come in, right? We have an advantage over the Pharisees and the crowds here because we've been given the Spirit of God. We read about it in Joel. We read about it in Acts. The Spirit has been poured out on us like we just sing about Those who have been reborn of the Spirit to follow Jesus have an advantage over these people. We've been captured by a vision of Jesus so strong that it empowers us to bring life and light into a dark world as we await with hope the coming of God's kingdom. We're living among the blind as re-enchanted people with eyes wide open to Jesus, imaginatively approaching creation and culture with the faith, hope, and love of, of Jesus, right? I think if we're honest, though, If we look at our lived experience, maybe the waters we swim in have gotten into us as well. Maybe there's a subtle tragedy among us as well. Maybe we, people in whom the Spirit of God tabernacles, can just as easily lose not our salvation in, but our vision of Jesus. Maybe we too have gotten so comfortable and casual with looking at Jesus that we've forgotten what it means to see him. This is Henry Nowen. We are constantly tempted to replace the original vision with the rather comfortable interpretation of that vision. None of us are probably caught up in legalistic religiosity like the Pharisees here, but have you traded the original unadulterated vision of Jesus for a cynical vision? A watered-down vision? A comfortable middle-class vision? A conservative vision? A progressive vision? A hurried vision? If you're anything like me, I'd probably guess that the answer is yes. And by the power of the Spirit, we we can see Jesus, but often not fully. We can look, but we have to learn, and if we're honest, relearn what it means to see him. Becoming mature, whole disciples of Jesus starts with a clear vision of him. If we can't see Jesus, we can't know him as friend, we can't trust him as Savior, we can't obey him as Lord. If we're not rooted in a rich vision of Jesus, we cannot bear what Matthew goes to call the fruit of righteousness. We can easily end up like the Pharisees here. And I think the remedy to this condition, a way to think about cultivating a life of 2020 Jesus vision, if you will, lies in an image that Jesus uses to conclude this passage. And that image is a tree. So here we are at scene four, the way of a tree. Either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? 
or the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. What do trees have to do with sight? Have to do with refocusing our gaze on Jesus. Scripture tells them two ways. Two ways of living, of moving about in the world. One leads to decay and bitterness and death. One leads to life. Recall Psalm 1. I've been living in this verse for the past few months. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like the chaff that the wind blows away. So obviously here, Pharisees are bad trees. They're living in the way of the wicked. Their words and their actions are exposing the condition of their hearts. But how does a tree become good? Well, it's not by accident. A good person produces good things from his storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. So the fruit you bear, what you bring to the world, to your community, to your own life experience, is dependent on what you store up. If you store up goodness, you'll bear good fruit and, and, and vice versa. Think of a tree for a second. Even if it's a smaller fruit or vegetable plant, the, the process of maturation and growth. Bearing good fruit takes time and intentionality, what arborists and gardeners would call cultivation. Intentional tending to the environment, the well-being, the, the nutrition of the organism. Providing it with the means by which it will grow, so food, water, trellising, and the like. This process of cultivation is similar to what followers of Jesus have long called intentional spiritual formation. The process of being transformed in such a way that enables us to bear good fruit and live lives of self-giving love as a set-apart people in this beautiful but broken world. But, but hold on. Wasn't this the Pharisees, though? They gave their entire lives to Yahweh and to the keeping of his laws. and Their original intention was good and blessed by God. Scripture tells us that their righteousness was unmatched. But they were very clearly missing something. What was it that they were missing here? I think it was roots. Think of an uprooted tree. Maybe a tree that's been lifted out of the ground and placed on like a, like a tarp. You can feed the tree all you want. You can give it all the intentionality, TLC, time that you want. The tree is not going to grow. Because the greatest source of life for this tree comes from a power outside of itself and largely out of even the arborist or gardener's control. It comes from the roots. The Pharisees here, they were practicing a way, but they weren't practicing the way. Their fruit or their practice here was disconnected from a healthy root system. And I think it's the root of our hearts that give us the capacity to store up good, that enables us to, in a Romans 12 kind of way, to renew our minds, that enables us to become like Jesus and to do what he did. The roots are what give us strength to become resilient against the elements of the spirit of the age. But what are these roots? I think it's who the Pharisees looked at but failed to see. It's what we've been talking about this entire time. Our roots, it is our vision. And our vision is Jesus. Spiritual health and fruit are cultivated by being rooted in a rich vision of Jesus by truly seeing him. We all began as uprooted trees, beautiful but disconnected from our true source of true life. And before we can even think about growth or, or fruit, I think our roots need tending to. I think our vision needs tending to. 
There's a reason being with him comes before being like him, doing what he did. The vision is Jesus, and our vision, our unadulterated line of sight is Jesus. And when we miss that, we start to slowly become disconnected from our roots. We begin to settle for just looking at Jesus instead of fighting so hard to see him, to keep living with with his face in view. When we do this, we run the risk of forgetting who he is, forgetting who we are, forgetting who we're becoming in him. We run the risk of not going to the places that he would go. We run the risk of slipping into doing for instead of being with. This is Pete Gregg. The heartbeat of our faith is not achieving great things for God, nor is it doing great things with God. Our deepest longing is to simply be with God. And when we fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, there will be many consequences, many aspirations. There may even be a great deal of activity and achievement. But these are just fractals of grace. And while others may applaud our apparent success, our plumb line is his presence and our focus is his face. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will start to grow strangely dim. And the light of his glory and grace is how the old hymn goes. Seeing Jesus is just one part of the journey. Fighting every day to fix our eyes back on him Practicing and submitting to his way and doing what he did. Now, that's, that's all another story. We got sermons on that as well. But seeing him is an essential step. Because none of us got to where we are today without first being captured by a vision of Jesus, be it in a joy-filled moment or over several years of wrestling and doubting and tears or just over simple encounters with him on the pages of Scripture. Anyone who knows him has first seen him, not just looked but truly seen him. Here's what I want to do. I just want to leave you with an invitation of how to practice this intentional seeing. It's simple. It's called contemplation. I find a helpful picture of contemplation in the lyrics of Psalm 27. The psalmist writes, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And to seek him in his temple. Contemplation is the gaze of the soul upon the God who loves us, as some of the ancients called it. And contemplation has a rich history in the life of the church mothers and fathers, and even in the life of Jesus himself. But I just want to stick simple here. I want to show you two ways to practice seeing Jesus this week that will hopefully help you cultivate a deeper awareness of his presence with you in your daily life. The first one is seeing Jesus in creation and in others. Psalm 19 pens, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. In a similar vein, author Elizabeth Barrett Browning, she writes, Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round and pluck blackberries. But I think this seeing Jesus in creation and in others can be summed up to cultivating a holy awareness. If you think about Moses and the burning bush, I was just on a call with a, a prayer ministry a few weeks ago, and someone enlightened something to me. Um, burning bushes were pretty common in, Jesus, in uh, Moses' day. It wasn't some weird thing that this bush was burning. And actually, in the heat of the, of the desert, bushes would just kind of spontaneously catch fire. But the important part of that story, if you can recall, is 
how Moses saw the burning bush, and he didn't just move on. He didn't just look at it. He saw it, and he turned to the side, entering into a full sensory experience with the presence of God, sight, hearing, uh, smelling, you know, the flames burning. There was an invitation there to truly see. And I think we can often think um, of creation as just nature, which is half true. But, but I think God's highest order of creation isn't, isn't nature, it's, it's us. The greatest expression of God's creativity can, can be found in the human being. So my question to you guys in thinking about seeing Jesus in creation and in others can be summed up like this. What are the, the human burning bushes in your life? Which is a crude analogy, but what are they? For me, it's the opportunity to put my phone on the table, put it away, look in the eyes of my two-year-old daughter and, and, and like draw with her. Take some time to play Play-Doh with her. It's the one text I keep forgetting to respond back to. It's the, the houseless friend on the corner of my neighborhood. It's the potential six-hour meeting with that one couple who's having marriage problems or that one person who's struggling with their singleness or that one person that's struggling in their gender identity. Are these distractions in your life? Or are they burning bushes through which the Spirit is begging your attention? Ask yourself those questions. Respond to the Spirit reaching out to you through creation, through others. Secondly, we can see Jesus in prayer and in Scripture. We can practice this contemplation in prayer and in Scripture. Over the years, I've found that simple breath prayer, typically taken straight from Scripture, helps me to refocus my attention and reorder my affections to Jesus in the ordinary day-to-day life. And I'll just give you one that I've been chewing on recently in this passage from John 14, verse 27. My peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. It's a few words that anchors me throughout my day. If you think of a boat being tugged around by winds, by the waves, an anchor, what pulls them back to the center of their reality. My peace I leave to you, with you, my peace I give you. Sometimes I just recall it to mind. Sometimes I read it. Sometimes I do like a, a Lectio Divina with it, taking it in chunks, chewing on it slowly, letting the words change me, taking time to not just look at the words like we saw the Pharisees look at Jesus, but to actually see these words, to let them into my reality. So this could be whatever works for you. Take a chunk of scripture, take something small, take something simple, hold on to it for a minute, for a day, for a week, for a month, for a year. See how that changes you, seeing Jesus in prayer and in scripture. And there's much more uh, that you can do than this. These are just simple tools that by the power of the Spirit might help you to begin to see Jesus more clearly. What do you think the first thing was that the healed man saw? You go back to the very first verse, the verse that we started with, this demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak. He was healed. What's the first thing that he saw? I actually don't know. None of us know. Like I said, Matthew is very vague here. He gives no detail about what happened to this man afterward. But I wonder if it was the face of Jesus. It would make sense. I mean, he's right in front of him. He's uh, he had the demon just cast out of him, and he's trying to get, find his bearings. He probably is looking for the guy that healed him. He probably found the face of Jesus. And if so, I think he experienced the craziest part of all this. The craziest part about what happens when our vision is Jesus, when we can truly see him. When you look in the eyes of Jesus, you see him looking right back at you. If our vision is Jesus, we see that Jesus' vision is just us. 
The invitation to contemplation is really just this, the invitation to respond back to his gaze, to look at him looking at you. And missing Jesus, missing this kind of sight means missing out on seeing him looking back right at you. If our vision is Jesus, we'll soon see that his vision isn't primarily our success or our perfection or our transformation, our ministry. It's just us. The Apostle John says it's to the Father's glory that we bear much fruit. But I'd argue that God's greatest glory is man fully alive. That's a quote from Arrhenius. Gazing into us as we gaze back into him in wonder, humility, and complete assurance of who it is that we belong to, that's what it means to look at Jesus. So wherever you find yourself, I don't know if you're in, in, in a valley right now, the shadow of the deepest death, or you're in a season of what seems like jubilee, or you're in the middle. I think the invitation to turn our eyes upon Jesus is open to all of us. Learn to truly see him. When you do, you'll see him looking right back at you, and this is the only vision that will sustain. So gaze upon Jesus, and he will sustain you. Let's pray. Lord, we long to see you. We long to do more than just look in your general direction, to look at your hand, to look at the things you do. Not once are we told to seek your hand. We're told to seek your face. So, Lord, that, that is our desire. I pray that in this moment, something, something switches in us, something opens up a new way to experience you in our day-to-day lives, either reviving an old way or showing us a new way. Be present to us. Empower us to respond in kind, presenting all of who we are to you in humility and submission and obedience. Our vision is you. Thank you for never missing us. It's in your name.